cheated. Good morning. It's wonderful to be back amongst you. Over the last several months, I've been here repeatedly during the week for meetings of one kind or another, but I miss being with you on Sunday morning. This is a, this is a very special place to me. I was thinking this last week, something that I suppose I ought to confess. You know, I work with uh, Episcopal churches all up and down the West Coast. I won't recite them all to you. Um, but when I think of them, I think if there's, if there's one church in the lot where I would be glad to make my home, it would be here. You guys are the best. <laughs> I would like to begin this morning with a brief grace note, if I could. Um, I've been conscious all morning that... Um, the remaining members of the congregation of the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, Texas, got together for worship today, uh, unable to meet in their own blood-stained and bullet-riddled sanctuary. They were guests of a neighboring church. I don't know how a congregation survives a tragedy like that, that kind of violence, that kind of evil within its own walls. I think that we, I trust that we can all agree that this kind of ongoing violence in our society is something that we have to figure out how to bring it to an end. I think it's a sign of uh, a tear in the fabric of our society, some kind of coming apart of human connection that expresses itself in violence. I do not believe that there is an easy solution to this problem. I don't, I don't think that getting rid of all guns or arming everybody in the country is going to be the answer. Somehow, we need to figure out how it is that individuals like Devin Kelly came unglued or unwoven from the fabric of human society to the point that in his isolation and loneliness and sense of rejection and unwantedness felt the need to lash out in this kind of violent act. He's not the only one that has come apart from our society. When I worked in a homeless shelter, I was aware that most of our clients had been, for one reason or another, threads that had become unwoven from the fabric of human society and that the real task of solving their problems was going to be to weave them back together with us into the fabric of life. Somehow to reconnect them with friends and with family, with work, with communities of faith, with people that would love them and care for them and believe in them in times of crisis. And like I said, I don't believe this is easy, but I do believe that the Christian church and certainly churches like St. Wilfred have a key role to play in this work. Given that we are followers of Jesus Christ, whose uh, one commandment to us was that we should love one another as he has loved us. I think that means being 
on the forefront of acceptance and healing and finding solutions and alternatives to violence. So I think it's a conversation I just wanted to invite us all to have, to think about how can we make a difference? How can we heal this torn fabric of society that we have today? Thank you. I want to, uh, anybody here find this uh, parable of the bride, 10 bridesmaids just a little bit weird? <laughs> you know, you got oil and you, some of them got oil, some of them don't have oil. You know, this is one of those, is one of those th- parables that if it didn't come up in the lectionary, I probably would not preach on it, you know, but this is one of the things that the lectionary does to you. Um, I really think it's about being ready, you know, to boil it down. We could get into all kinds of, you know, discussions about it, but ultimately it's some people got there and they weren't ready. They, they weren't prepared. Um, Karen had a wonderful question this morning with the kids, you know. Have, have any, yes, she asked the kids, and I asked the adults, have any of you um, headed out on a trip or maybe you were headed off to work or you were headed off on a vacation or you were headed off to a, a baseball game and you got halfway there and you thought, oh, I forgot. You, you ever have that happen to you? Oh, I forgot. And you just, and, and you just went, you know, you knew. The first thing you did was you tried to find somebody else to blame. I mean, that's what I always do. Okay, not my fault. My wife was supposed to remember that, right? So, you know, but for, for whatever reason, you're on your way and you know in your heart of hearts you are not ready. You just forgot something. Well, we all do that. We all do. I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. And, and with that in mind, um, is there anyone here willing to confess along with me that you have a tendency for procrastination? Anybody? Does that, does that resonate? I, okay. I, I see some hands up. I see some heads nodding. If you see somebody going, no, I don't think so, they're, they're lying to themselves. That's okay. That's okay. Well, when I find myself falling prey to this habit, I recall what I call an educational moment in my life. This happened about 30 years ago. My wife and I had purchased a home in Ashland, Oregon, and it came with a hot tub. Now, the hot tub was a great feature, but it had been purchased, used by the previous owner. He had gone to someone's home in a rented truck, taken this hot tub pump and filter system apart, loaded it onto his truck, carted the whole thing back to his house, and put it all together again himself. Unfortunately, the man was not a plumber. And while he succeeded somehow in making it all work, it was in fact not put together properly. It was all supposed to fit under this little staircase that you walked up to get in the hot tub. That staircase wouldn't push in all the way, so it was this gap about this wide that you had to step over. And changing the filter was just a real pain in the... Well, it was. And... The thing leaked all the time. I was constantly fussing with it. I knew it was going to cost a bundle to get the thing fixed. So I just kept 
doing this constant maintenance after year after year. Eventually, there was a repair that I could not make on my own, and I had to call a repairman from the local spa dealership who came over and took care of that. And during his work, this kind man looks at me and he says, you know, this system isn't put together properly. And I said, like, duh. (laughs) Thank you very much. But I'd had it. At that point, I just was, I'd had it. I'd been dealing with this thing for years. I didn't care how much it cost. So I said, okay, just just tell me. We're going to take care of this. What's it going to toss to take this whole thing apart and put it back together so it works right? And he stepped back and he eyeballed the whole thing. He took off his hat. He scratched his head. He said, well, I don't know. Maybe $20, $25. (laughs) Boy, did I feel like an idiot. So, of course, I had the work done, you know. And for the most part, I learned my lesson. Don't guess. Don't assume. Don't put it off till later. It probably isn't anywhere near as arduous or difficult or expensive as you think it's going to be. The gospel lesson today tells us that we should be ready. The world will bring unexpected challenges and opportunities, and we ought to be prepared. Now, most, some of us here are, are longtime residents of uh, Southern California. Some of you newcomers may not be as up onto this, but we all know, we all know that a major earthquake is going to hit Los Angeles and San Diego sometime in the future. Are we ready? A lot of people aren't. Three months ago, I chatted with my sister on her 63rd birthday. I fully expected to chat with her again on Thanksgiving, and then she up and died on October 3rd. I was not ready for that. In the last six weeks, I've made a point of talking to my daughter and my brother and my wife about my death, saying no I'm not going to be ready for that when it happens. You're not going to be ready for that. But I'd like to be more ready for that than I was when my sister passed six weeks ago. We all know that in the fall of every year, the church is going to ask us to make a pledge of financial support to the vital ministries of our faith community in the next calendar year. And yet that seems to take us by surprise. That pledge form lingers on the desk or it sits on the kitchen counter or it gets buried in the stack of mail that oh don't worry I'll get to that later well in hopes that we can largely wrap up our annual campaign and our capital campaign by Thanksgiving and head into Advent and Christmas with deep gratitude for the generosity of this congregation I want to take some time this morning to reflect on the intersection of money and faith, and being ready. The facts are pretty straightforward. In the New Testament, Jesus offers more wisdom and has more to say about money than any other subject besides the kingdom of God. If you don't believe me, do a little biblical research. 
It will show you that Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Eleven of the 39 parables he tells are about finances. Given how much Jesus talked about money during his ministry, it is amazing how little we talk about money in the life of the church. I think that Jesus looked around him. He saw a lot of really good people who had become slaves to their wealth, prisoners to constant acquisition, deaf to the needs of the poor, and he summed up the world he saw in simple, straightforward, and somewhat frightful words. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's saying to us, if you want to know, our, if we want to know our true values, if we want to know our real priorities, all we need to do is take a look at our checkbook. Anybody still use a checkbook? Yeah? Our check, your checkbook, our credit card statements, our investment portfolios, and our tax returns. The facts are there, friends, laid out. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I bet that the people who heard Jesus the first time he said this didn't like it any better than we do. No doubt they thought he ought not to poke around in their private business. They thought he should stick to spiritual matters. But Jesus keeps saying to us, what you do with your money is a spiritual matter. Several decades ago, the Presbyterian Church surveyed 4,000 of its members, asking a variety of questions. What is faith? How do you get it? How is it nurtured? But the survey found some unexpected answers. For instance, the panel discovered that most people were willing to sacrifice friends, home, and job but not money for Christian causes. The report concluded that the unwillingness or inability of members to risk money in comparison to time, friends, work, or home may be a commentary on the church in our times. For some time now, the mantra, the repeated mantra we have heard all over the place is how we need to buckle down and do more with less. Let's do more with less. Well, why is that? Why can't we do more with more? What's wrong with that? What has happened to the will to give and the impulse to radical generosity? With this attitude dominating our public discourse, we see the basic infrastructure of our country decay, our inner cities fester, suburban communities threaten to close, homeless service organizations, the gap between the rich and the poor gets wider and wider, beggars panhandle on our street corners, and our homeless neighbors sleep in our doorways. Schools deteriorate as bond measures fail, and even our church facilities are suffering from years of long deferred maintenance. I do not believe that this is due to a lack of resources, but rather it is due to the lack of the will to use these resources to meet the desperate needs. 
Perhaps we have succumbed to the siren call of comfort. Now, friends, this is a confession. This is not blame. This is a confession. Perhaps we have succumbed to the siren call of comfort, that stealthy visitor who, according to Khalil Gibran, enters the house a guest and then becomes a host and then a master. Verily, the lust for comfort murders the passions of our souls and then walks grinning in the funeral. These words may sound harsh, but I think they only echo the words of Jesus who said to us, do not store up riches for yourselves here on earth where moths and rust destroy and robbers break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves riches in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and robbers cannot break in and steal for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The question we have to ask is this, where is my heart? Where is my heart? Is my heart filled with a passion for justice and a willingness to sacrifice self and wealth to heal the wounds of a hurting world? Or has my heart become a servant of comfort and a slave to my own riches, making me miserly, selfish, and reluctant to share? If we fail in our efforts to bind up the wounds of the poor and neglected, if we abandon our decaying infrastructure to its inevitable decline, it will not be because we lacked the money to get it done. It will be because we have failed to be good stewards of the wealth that God has entrusted to our care. It will be because we, as citizens of the richest country in the world, chose greed over generosity, consumption over caring, comfort over kindness, and devoted more of ourselves to the pursuit of wealth than the pursuit of justice and beauty. The good news is that in addition to these troubling and discomforting comments from Jesus about how we should manage our personal wealth, he also offers us his unconditional love and the assurance that with his guidance and companionship, we are more than up to the task of putting love first in our lives and truly living up to the one new commandment that he gave to us, to love one another as I have loved you. In an article in Forbes magazine, Peter Grandich, author of the book Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid, said that his years as a highly successful Wall Street stockbroker left him spiritually depleted and clinically depressed, and that the Bible is an excellent financial advisor whether or not you're religious. According to Grandich, the writers of the Bible anticipated the problems we would have with money and possessions. Our whole culture now is built on the premise that we have to have more money and more stuff to feel happy and secure. Public storage is the poster child for what's wrong with America. We have too much stuff because we bought into the myth fabricated by Wall Street and Madison Avenue that the more, more stuff equals more happiness. And that's the total opposite of the truth and the total opposite of what it says in the Bible. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the promise of Isaiah 58 was made real. If you put an end to oppression, 
to every gesture of contempt and to every evil word. If you give food to the hungry and satisfy those who are in need, then the darkness around you will turn to the brightness of noon. And I will always guide you and satisfy you with good things. You will be like a garden that has plenty of water, like a spring that never goes dry. Your people will rebuild what has long been in ruins. You will be known as the people who rebuilt the walls and the restorer of streets to dwell in. This text speaks of the richness of life talks about the true wealth we have by living lives of generosity and kindness. Not the kind of wealth found in treasure chests, bank accounts, or worldly possessions, but in our relationships with others. Maybe, just maybe, in a society rooted in these values, we might be able to offer some hope and healing that would have kept Devin Kelly from murdering 26 people in church last Sunday morning. Maybe not. I hope so. But I think it's obvious that what we're doing now isn't working. While I was getting my music degree at Arizona State University, um, these were back in my days as a heretic when I was still a Methodist. Please forgive me. (coughs) I served as the youth director at a United Methodist Church One of our service projects each spring was to open up a local church camp following its winter hiatus, and this meant cleaning the cabins and rousting out the occasional rattlesnake, resident scorpion, and a variety of other desert vermin that had taken up housekeeping. In return, our room and board was free, and one of our adult counselors, a veteran of desert hiking, knew the location of a cave about a 20-minute drive from our campground, The entrance was completely unmarked, and believe me, without his guidance, I would not have even known it was there. It was just a very small hole in the cliffside, largely obscured by a huge boulder. With his guidance, we got on our hands and knees, and we we crawled for about five feet, at which point you could stand up in a space large enough to hold maybe four or five people. But at the far end of that little cave, there was another crawl space, about another 10 feet that took us into a huge cavern with enough room so that the 30 of us could move around and be completely out of touch with one another. And we spread ourselves out through this cavern, at which point I invited everyone into a time of silence and we turned off all the lights. Pitch black descended. Now we don't have many chances these days to experience deep, darkness, an all-encompassing, all-enveloping darkness, when you literally can't see the hand in front of your face. And I sat there in the quiet and the dark, and a little voice in my head said, you are completely alone in this darkness. And a bolt of fear coursed through my body. And another voice in my head said, no, 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 no. You know perfectly well, you came in here with 29 other people. They're all sitting here with you in the darkness, I think. 
And the other voice replied, you are wrong. You are completely wrong. You are alone. You are completely alone. And furthermore, you are going to die right here. And anxiety and fear crept through my being. I was locked in this internal argument, trying desperately to keep this rising fear from overtaking me, feeling this intense sense of isolation and loneliness. And all of a sudden, somewhere in the depths of that cavern, in the midst of this complete dark and scaring nothingness, one small, quivering voice whispered, Is anybody there? and was quickly met by all of us resounding, yes, yes, I'm here, I'm here. I struck a match, and you'd have thought that I'd have turned on a spotlight as the walls glimmered and flickered with the light of that flame. There are people in this world, my friends, who are enveloped in darkness. They've gotten to the place where they can't see their hands in front of their faces and in fear and trembling, they rise in the morning and ask, is anybody there? When you make a pledge to the annual campaign budget here at St. Wilfrid's or pledge your support for the capital campaign, that is one way of saying to them, yes, we are here You are not alone. Your gift is a light shining in the darkness, a flame of hope in a world of need. If you've already made your pledge, thank you. If you want to raise that pledge, that's awesome. Just let us know. If you haven't made your pledge, today would be a great day to get it done. This is your chance. Push back the darkness. Let the hurting world know that we are here.